Um, I want to dedicate again this class uh, for number one um, for the success of the Israeli military in achieving uh, a complete and full victory over the enemies without casualties and that may they be extremely successful in eradicating our enemies and Hashem should bless them with health, safety, and protect them. And also, uh, I want to dedicate the class uh, to the memory of those fallen soldiers and injured soldiers. And I, I do want to make a special mention. Uh, we have some American young men that joined the army. Um, they call them the lone soldiers. Uh, they don't have any family over there. Unfortunately, two of them have been killed um, in the uh, first major battle over there and the um, and you know while the soldiers in Israel uh, there's a law that they have to join the army I mean these are totally volunteers and they uh, sacrifice uh, their life for the safety of the rest of, 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 of the Jewish people so that everybody else can um, and live in safety. And once again, we we find ourselves in a situation in which, you know, even our friends, sort of our supporters, are talking from both sides of their mouths. And once they say, yeah, Israel has a right to defend itself uh, against this indiscriminate terrorist activity of just shooting, uh, throwing these missiles all over Israel and just trying to catch whatever they can. And at the same time, they also say uh, the amount of casualties is unacceptable, as if to say what they're basically saying, that Israel's campaign to combat these terrorists, somehow Israel cares less about the civilian casualties than those people that are preaching to them and telling them about, you know, it's, it's, it's too much. While we know that Israel really goes out of its way beyond anything that any other country would do to protect civilians and not to try to harm them. But it's impossible when these people use uh, people as a human shield and they're not stopping. Israel has embraced the ceasefire all the time and they don't want no ceasefires. They're keeping on shooting. So what could Israel do? So the people that sort of say, uh, okay, you know, you have to defend yourself, but don't kill the innocents, but they are using them as human shields. And somebody said that they actually stopped sending those leaflets where they're going to attack because they forced the people to actually come there. It was more casualties. They were coming, the human shields, and there's testimony now from the soldiers that they're holding a baby in their hand and they're coming to attack. It's just horrific, and it's just unbelievable. And the problem is that we do live in an anti-Semitic world. We have to realize that we live in an anti-Semitic world because the world accepts the version. Unfortunately, they are scoring victories in the public arena as well as they stopped now all the flights to Israel. They succeeded. That's what? That's something, uh, that's a victory on their, their, they, they, their terrorism. They're terrorizing. So now they have succeeded in doing that. So we're going to study and we're going to um, 
pray to Hashem to ask Him to help us, help the Jewish people. Later on, when I have to go to Mincha, uh, maybe you'll say a little Tilam also to uh, learn. But today we're going to study a little bit of the different, usually we learn of the Parsha of the week, but because we find ourselves in the three weeks, and the three weeks we actually are mourning the destruction of the temple. We know that during the three weeks we don't make any weddings, we don't do joyous things, we, especially as the days goes on, then comes the nine days, which means the last nine days before Tisha B'Av, before the ninth of Av, which become even more restrictive, like we don't even eat any meat products starting from Sunday, Rosh Chodesh Av, till Tisha B'Av, coming Sunday, for nine days we don't eat any meat products, we don't drink any wine uh, in that time, let's do more. I'm talking during the week. Shabbos, yes. What is supposed yeah, to be? Yeah. So I'm not familiar with this. What is okay. this? Okay. So this is this the the um, both the first and the second temple were destroyed during this period of time, and we mourn the destruction of the temple. Some of the laws of the mourning that we mourn are similar to mourning a personal loss that when a loved one dies, and you're supposed to mourn for them. Some of the laws apply here as well. So. The three weeks are sort of the period from when the um, when they breached uh, the wall of Jerusalem, and it took three weeks from that point of from that point until they actually put the Bet Hamikdash, the sanctuary, on fire. They burnt the temple, so it was three weeks. So that's why we have the three weeks of mourning. Actually, the Mishnah, the Talmud says there were five terrible things that took place on the 17th day of Tammuz. 17th day of Tammuz to the ninth day of Av, these are two dates, which are three weeks. Those are the three weeks. And during these three weeks, like I said, we don't do things of joy. And generally, we try to refrain from excessive joyous activities, and uh, we try to take careful, be careful in what we do. Even the Talmud says that if somebody has, let's say, a court case, uh, should try with somebody who's not Jewish, he should try to push it off for after the nine days, not during the, of, not during the month of Av, because the Jewish luck is not so good in those days. It's not such a good time. But better put it off to the time of Purim, to the time of Purim when it's more, much more a happier time. So... These three weeks, basically, we mourn the destruction of the temple. But mourning sometimes could make people very sad. And sometimes people can become depressed when you just mourn. So the goal and the purpose of the mourning of the three weeks is not for us to become uh, despondent, for us to become depressed, to give up hope, uh, feel that it's hopeless, that you know the temple has been... Uh, destroyed for so many thousands of years and therefore we don't have any hope. That's not the purpose of it. The contrary, uh, we're remembering the temple not as if it's something that is bygone, but to try to help and rebuild the temple. We want to encourage ourselves. We want to give ourselves hope and we want to give ourselves strength. And we are full with... um, we are full with hope that God will help us and we will rebuild 
the temple. We will rebuild the temple. Now, how do we express this hope that Hashem will rebuild for us, that Mashiach will come and He will build us back the temple and we will be rebuilt? How do we express that? How do, what do we do? So the Rebbe actually asked that during this period of the three weeks, we should study some of the laws as it pertains to the temple, to the sanctuary. So when we learn and we study about the temple, so then we are sort of uh, saying that we are going to uh, study, we're going to learn about it so that we know how to do it, so that when it comes the time, we will actually be able to do. On a very simple level, the Rebbe asked that we study the laws of the building of the temple in various different places, both in the uh, prophets, in the uh, writings, the prophets, the, the, in the uh, Rambam, the Mishnah Torah, in the Talmud, the Mishnah, various different places, all about learning about the temple and learning about the physical structure, not just about ideas, but the practical things, the measurements, the, the, very, the looks, the different uh, rules, how it applies to the structure, to the building of the Beis HaMikdash. But the Rebbe actually says that there's more than that. You know, sometimes we can't do what we want to do. So let's say, give an example. So now we see there's fighting in Israel and we want to do something more than just, you know, saying words or, but we want to do something. Okay, so we can study Torah over here, but sometimes we don't feel that that is enough. Maybe we want to go fight. We want to go be there to help them actually physically be there, but we can't be there. So, so what do we do? So we try to do the best we can to substitute it. Maybe we give extra charity. Maybe we do extra prayers. Maybe we, uh, we do um, uh, extra study. What we try to do good things, or we try to be helpful. We try to help be kind to other people. We try to work together. We try to do something to feel that we're doing something. But the bottom line is, we're not fighting over there. I mean, we are not in dangers, we're not in harm's way. We are not actually being there physically. We're just doing things on a spiritual, and we are not doing it physically. And we're therefore, so of course, God put us over here for whatever reason, this is where we are. So we do the best under our circumstances, so we do the best we can. We do what we can do from here, and that's what we do. But the Rebbe comes up with a very interesting idea. He says that when we study about the temple, when we study about the building of the structure and all the laws of the Beit, the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaBechira, it's more than just like to say, well, we can't build we can't build the temple now, so what are we going to do? So we're going to study about it. So, I mean, like we said, this is the best we can do. So there is no temple, there's nothing, there's no hammers, no nails, there's no physical building, so we're going to study about it. So it's, it's sort of second best. We can build a temple, and we don't have a temple. It's second best. But we can't say, we would think, we can't say that by studying the temple, one would think 
that I'm building right now the Beis Hamikdash. You're not building the Beis Hamikdash. Maybe God counts it as if you built the Beis Hamikdash. Maybe God. Uh, it's important to God that you study Torah, that you learn about these subjects, so that it's the best thing you can do under the circumstances. But the Rebbe says no. The Rebbe says when we study about the Beis Hamikdash, when we study about the Temple, it's like, even though it's not physical. But it's not that God considers we are in a certain level building now. We're building the Beis Hamikdash in a miniature way. But it's not actually because the physical will be built, Mashiach will come. But we are sort of building the building blocks. And the Rebbe brings this down that the, the, uh, from the Medrash Tanchuma to prove the languages over there. It goes through a whole uh, discussion there. But just to say... The prophet Ezekiel, in the prophet Ezekiel, God is telling Yecheskel Hanavi, the prophet Ezekiel, is telling him exactly the measurements of the uh, Beis Hamikdash the way it's supposed to. This was talking about in the time that was uh, after the destruction of the first Beit Hamikdash. There were the Jews lived in Israel for four hundred years while the Beit HaMikdash stood and then they were exiled out of Israel for 70 years they were chased out of Israel and then they came back and built the second temple so there was two temples over there while the Jews were after the in between the first and the second temple while they were there the prophet Yechezkel is telling them how they should build the second temple the second temple, that when they get back they should know how to build it. So the prophet Yechezkel says to God, the Medrash says, he says, what am I going to tell them how to build the Beis Amigdosh, how to build the sanctuary, but they don't have the possibility to build it because they find themselves in exile. They don't have the freedom, they can't build anything. Why am I going to tell them to go build something which they can't build? And Hashem sort of answers over there, he quotes, he says, Hashem says to, no, you go and you tell them. Just because they are in exile, God says, and this is a key word, why should my sanctuary, why should my place of resting, why should the Beit HaMikdash, why should it be desolate? Just because there is. So, which clearly implies that when they are being told about the Beis Hamikdash and learning the Beis Hamikdash, the Beis Hamikdash isn't desolate. It's not. It's not waste. It's 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 real. It's real in a sense. It's almost real, so to say. It's not only that when we study the temple, we are doing our obligation as people to deal with the temple, but there's actually the object, the temple itself, is sort of being built. So that's why. We're going to study today's class a little bit about the actual temple, about the sanctuary. And we're going to discuss today, and we we'll, can follow up in later classes, we're going to discuss today the area on the Temple Mount, which is called the Har Habayis. Temple Mount means the Har Habayis. That's the mountain on which the temple stood. If you were in Israel, were you in Israel? You were in Israel? So you know you have the Wailing Wall, they call the Western Wall, the Kotel. The Kotel, Moravi, that's the outside wall 
of the western wall of the Temple Mount. Inside of the wall, and if you go around from the other side, opposite the Har Hazesin, Mount of Olives, that is where you can see where they have their mosque up there and where they have a whole area. And the question is really what, if you maybe noticed, that tourists sometimes go up to the Temple Mount. They go up over there to visit. But the religious people, and there are signs over there, say that you are not allowed to go up onto the Temple Mount. The question becomes, is it something we are allowed to or not? What is the debate over here? What is the discussion? I want to discuss a little bit about that, about this Temple Mount where the structure was built. What is this about? How does this come about that some say you could, some say you don't? What is it about? You wanted to say something? No? Okay. So this is a discussion. Now, I'm not sure if you were visited. Did you go up to the Temple Mount? No. You didn't, because it says the signs there. It's also a little bit dangerous. And if we have time, I'll have a little clip here uh, that it plays, shows you the, um, how they, uh, some of these the Palestinians there and the worship, and they go crazy. Like, there was a bunch of kids there, and they're, they're just almost, you know, uh, a riot broke out over there against these little kids over there. there. But... I want to go back to the very beginning of there are various different parts that the Jews had when they camped, when they were in the desert. As you know, when the Jews left Egypt, so they went in the desert. They actually journeyed in the desert for 40 years. And they weren't traveling the whole time. Matter of fact, this week's portion is a lamase, which means the journeys. And Rashi says that for 38 years that they spent in the desert, they only went 22 travels. So within 48, within 38 years, they did 22 year, uh, travels. They did about 12 in the first year, 8 in the last year, and there was about 22 in the middle. So when they were camped in places, they would stay for a long time. Sometimes they stayed for for many years in one place. They didn't move, they stayed in one place. So they set up camp. Now that camp was set up in a very special way. The camp was set up in a special way and um, if you look at the diagram in front of you, even though the outer diagram is a circle, and they're all circles really, but you see there are three circles basically is what you see over here. You have the outer circle, and then you have the inner circle, and the, uh, then you have the circle in the very middle. Now, I made it circles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it was circles. You could have made it boxes as well. And my skills on drawing are very limited, so don't mind me for that. But I just wanted to demonstrate that there are three different camps. The very inner camp in the temple, the very inside one, the middle one, that was reserved for the divine. That was sort of God's place. That is where the sanctuary was. That is where all the services took place. That is where they offered <coughs> the sacrifices. Everything took place in that inner circle. That is where everything took place. That is also known as the Machane Shechina, which is the divine camp, the camp where the divine was. Now, immediately outside of that camp, there was another camp, and around which surrounded the temple, which was 
the Machana Leviyah. That was the Levite camp, which means that the Leviim, Leviim are from the 12 tribes that Moses had. He had 12 sons. The third one, uh, what Jacob had, I'm sorry, what Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. So the third one of Jacob's sons was Levi. Now all of his descendants, like we have today, a Kohen, a Levi, they all come from the tribe of Levi. They had a special mission. They protected the Mishkan. They served in the Mishkan. They did various different things. Their position uh, was right outside of the Mishkan. The Torah goes through very clearly telling you where everyone needs to be, that you have the Levites camping, and where Moshe and Aaron, where everybody was, on which side, and where the front, and they were in the back, and where the sons were, and where they guarded. It's all detailed in the Torah where they were. But that camp, that inner circle, represents the camp of the Levites. They were around, they surrounded the camp of the Divine. Now, the outer camp, the outer circle, the big circle, or again, there could be a square, that would be where the rest of the Jews camped. So you had three tribes, there were a total of, of 12 tribes, they were in the outer circle, so you had, because the tribe of Yosef, of Joseph, who was one of the 12 sons, that split into two. So technically we're talking about 13, because you're talking about 13, you're talking about the Levite, that was in the middle. Then you had another 12 sons, not, you had 11 sons, but one of them was divided into two. So they went three, this side three, and this side three, in the front three, in the back. So they formed another circle, another surrounding around the, around the Levite. So you had the camp of the Shekhinah, the divine, the outside camp of the Levites, and then the camp of the rest of, the, of Israel. Corresponding to that, now why are we calling them circles? As we're going to see in a minute, I will go back to the verse. Why are we calling the, why are we, what, how are they defined? Okay, we know that the Levite were here, but does it mean anything? What, what does it mean that the Levite, does it have any uh, practical uh, uh, outcome? Do we need to know what happens with this part or that part? What, why is that important for us to know? But as we will see soon, some people were not allowed into the intersection. Some people were not allowed into the middle section. And some people were not even allowed into the outer section. And we'll see who these people are. These people are people who became defiled. In Hebrew, they became tummy. If they became defiled, defiled means spiritually impure. They are spiritually impure. Now, how does one become spiritually impure? What does it mean, spiritually impure? There are various different ways. Yeah, you want to say something? There's various different ways. One is an internal impurity, which means a bodily emission, something that comes from inside, which the Torah renders the person 
being impure, such as uh, during the menstrual period by a woman, by a man, the equivalent, if there is uh, internal uh, emissions, they would render the man or the woman impure. Another form of impurity would be an external impurity. If a person will touch, let's say, a corpse, a dead body, so then the person would also become impure. So these are spiritual impurities, and they have their restrictions where the people with that impurity, where they're allowed to be or not allowed to be. And there's one more very serious impurity, which is also it's internal, but it's external. It's the leprosy. It's a kind of a rash, a spiritual rash, which is called a mitzoyda. A mitzoyda in Hebrew means a certain rash which renders the person also impure. So basically we talked about three levels of impurity. Now, I also want to say to you, if a person is impure, how does he become pure again? What, what is the procedure to want to become pure? How does one become pure? So just to quickly, again, there's a lot of details. I'm just giving you some just basic information. So from an internal uh, type of impurity, one goes to the mikvah, a kosher mikvah. If you immerse yourself in a mikvah, which has the qualifications of a kosher mikvah, then you become pure from the internal type of impurity. But when you touch a corpse, huh? But when you touch a corpse, then just going to the mikveh is not enough. The Torah also prescribes for you a uh, sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer. There was a red heifer, they burnt it, it was a whole procedure. On the third and the seventh day, they had to sprinkle, there was a procedure and a way to do that. So, what does this tell us? We're going to see in a minute. What does this tell us? Uh, we today don't have a red heifer, and we don't have the sprinkling brotherhood. And because of that, because we don't have the red heifer, we all are considered to be today Tmei Mason. We're all considered that we're defiled by, uh, by somebody touching, coming in contact with a corpse. Because it's inevitable, you're walking in the street, who knows if there's a grave over there, you know, there's, you know, everybody is not sure. The, and if you've ever become Tom A. Mace, you've ever come in contact with a, with a body, there's no way to get out of it because there is no ashes of the, and there's no sprinkling of the red heifer to make you clean. So we are all walking around today, we are considered to be Tomei Mason. We're considered to be Tomei Mason. But on the other hand, for the other's impurities, for the internal impurities, over there we can purify ourselves because we can go to the mikvah. If we go to the mikvah, we purify ourselves. Now, even a t- everybody has to go to the mikvah. 
has to immerse himself in a mikveh. Even if you have touched a corpse, but there's additional requirements. But the requirement for uh, a tome mace is something that we don't have today. There's the, 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 what quali- in order to qualify, to, in order to purify yourself, we don't have the, the, the ashes of the of the of the paraduma. So what are we going to do? So therefore, by today we don't have. I'm trying to see what time it is. No. Uh, so by today, we can't do anything about it. So we remain. So we can't become tired. But from the other levels of impurity, from the impurity of uh, internal things, that we can purify to go to the mecca. Now, I said before that these impurities sometimes have restrictions. People who are impure have restrictions where they're allowed to go and where they're not allowed to go. A person who is a tome mace, which means that he touched a corpse, they would be allowed to go in both of these camps. He can go into the third camp, to the Israelite camp, we call it. He can go into the Levite camp, but he can't go into the divine camp. Again, a person who has touched a corpse or come in contact with a corpse to which various different ways can go into the outer one and also to the Levite one. And that's fine. But a person with an internal impurity before they've gone to the mikvah is also not permitted to go into the Levite ones. Yes, to the Israelite, but not to the Levite ones. And a person with leprosy is not allowed to go even to the Israelite ones. So we have three categories of impurity. The uh, most serious one is one who has leprosy. If he has leprosy, he has to go out from all three camps. He can't go into any of the camps. He has to be outside of the camps. That if he has leprosy. If he has an internal uh, impurity, which made him from internally, then he has to stay out of the Levite, but he can be in the Israelite. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, if he has, if he's a touched a corpse, he can be in the Israelite. He can be in both, actually. He can be in both. He can be in the Levite and in the Israelite. But if a person that has an internal defilement, he can not be even in the Levite one. He cannot be in the Levite one either. I'm going to put throw your attention to a verse in the. I'm going to read it to you. If you turn to the page now, this is in Hebrew. So, I'm sorry. sure. Everyone who's clean. No, in Dubai. Is allowed to go. You're allowed to go there. Yes. If you're not impure at all, if you're clean, you can even go into the camp of the Now, that doesn't mean that you can go in, there is the Holy of Holies, there is the places where only the Levites can go within there. But we're talking about, generally speaking, those people that are allowed in there. It's not like it's a free-for-all. There's various different places where nobody was supposed to, I mean, where, like in the Holy of Holies was only where the 
high priest went in once a year during Yom Kippur, he went in there. But so there's there's a lot of more details, I'm giving you just some details. But I'm not sure, I'm going to read now from a verse, and I, I, I try to translate it into the English, the Rashi's commentary. So, okay, this is a verse in Deuteronomy, uh, in Bamidbar, in, num- in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 5, okay? I didn't translate the verse, but the verse reads, God says to Moses, saying, and also the printing is didn't print so well, so we'll do the best we can. So, God says to Moses, saying, I'm translating the verse, he tells them, instruct the sons of Israel, let them send away from the camp all those that have leprosy and all those that have a flow and all those that have been defiled by touching, by coming in contact with a corpse. Now, Remember, these are the three categories we talked about. The verse says, here's a copy for you. Let's have down a copy. Um, it's the best I have here. Let's see. Um, maybe share over there. Maybe share with somebody else. I don't know, these copies didn't come out so well. Okay. So. He, um, so he says like this. So we, we, in this verse over here, he talks about all the three categories of impurities. We talk about a tsarua, which would be one with leprosy. We talk about a zav, that is an internal omission. And we're also talking about tamelo nefesh, which means a person who has become defiled because they touched a corpse or came in contact with a corpse. So now we're going to learn Rashi's commentary, what Rashi comments over here. So what does Rashi say? I'm going to read right to, going to go straight to the English so we don't have to deal with the Hebrew over here. Rashi says like this, there were three camps in the desert. Remember I told you the camps? There were three camps in the desert. The camp of the divine, the camp of the Levites, and the camp of the Israelites. And this is quoting Rashi. Now Rashi says, inside the curtains, it's not, not printed out correctly, but inside the curtains that surrounded the courtyard, Rashi is saying over here, the divine, there was a partition around the divine. There was a the divine had like this, the area of the divine it was the sanctuary itself. That was a structure. It was made out of the beams of the standing cedar wood and they had the cover of curtains as described in the Torah exactly what it looked like. So that was the structure. But that structure also had a yard, like a courtyard in front of it. That whole area is called the divine place, that means the structure, including the yard. The yard was surrounded by a curtain, all around and around. So anything, the uh, the camp of the divine, uh, the, the inside the curtains that surrounded the courtyard of the Mishkan, Mishkan is the sanctuary, is the camp of the divine. So you had that 
curtain that went around and around the temple, which included the temple plus the courtyard, that is considered the divine. That's the inner circle that you have here, the very inner circle. Now, the camp of the Levite surrounded the camp of the divine. Now, it goes without explaining. What does it mean, the camp of the Levites? That means that's where the Levites camped. So they camped all around a circle or square, whatever it is, but they camped around the temple, around the sanctuary, around the divine section. And further, go to the next page. The camp of the Israelites stretched from the end of the Levite camp, in other words, wherever it ended, the Levite camp, to the end of the camps, to all four corners. Wherever the camps ended, that's as far as the the camps that when they comes. So what happens? Rashi gives you the rules in a very quick way. One who was impure because of leprosy was sent out of all three camps. He had to go all the ways outside, totally outside. One who was impure with an internal bodily omission was sent out of the divine and Levite camps but was allowed in the Israelite camp. Over there was allowed. Now, the most lenient, one who was impure due to touching a corpse, was not allowed in the divine camp, was permitted to be in the Levite and Israeli camp. So he can be, basically, he can be in the Levite, he's not allowed to go into the divine camp, but you can be in the Levite and the Israeli camp. And Rashi concludes, he says, our teachers derived all the above from the verses as articulated in Tractate Psochim, page 67b, how we learn out all these rules that we just said. So now, I want to draw your attention once again to the picture. Okay? So, what happens over here is these three categories that we had in the desert we transferred them to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. And over there we also had three sections. Again, there's more, there's like ten sections. But over there we also had three sections. We had one inner section which was called the Divine section. We had the second partition which is called the Levite section. And then we have the third partition, which is called the Israelite section, which correspond to the three sections the way it was in the desert. And the rules that applied for the Jews in the desert also applied to the Jews at the camps the way it was in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. The same laws as applied over there also apply to the temple in Jerusalem. And therefore, it turns out like this. The place where the actual structure of the Bet HaMikdash was built, that area, that was called the divine area. And the rest of the temple mount is called the camp of the Levites. And from the end of the Temple Mount till the walls of Jerusalem is the Israel camp. The way the camps are divided over here is 
from Jerusalem's wall, there's a wall that surrounds Jerusalem, not what we see today, that's from Herod, that's from the later era, but there, is, there was a wall that surrounded Jerusalem. That wall that surrounds Jerusalem, from there up till the Temple Mount, is called the Israelite camp, is, corresponds to the Israelite camp. The Temple Mount itself, till the area of the divine, is the Levite camp. And the area where there is the actual temple and the uh, rest of the courtyard over there, whatever was over there, that is the divine section. Within there, there's also the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Again, there is further, further spaces, but I'm talking generally for to us to understand the discussion over here. So, I want you to, pay, to look to, again to the picture over here, you'll see. Uh, so I have it like this. Number one, you have the camp for the divine in, in the desert. Now, on the Temple Mount, the area from the Nicanor Gate, that was a gate called the Nicanor Gate, named a generous person who brought big doors for the area over there, so it's called the Nicanor Gate. So from the area from the Nicanor Gate, through the sanctuary. That area is called the divine. Now, we, we, we have to look in further classes, maybe a picture of exactly how it looks over there, but today I'm just giving you a general outline of the general uh, different areas within the Temple Mount. Now, then you have number two, which is the camp of the Levites, which is the area of the... Okay, so that's the camp of the Levites, the, the, the circle which is the area of the Temple Mount was 500 amas by 500 amas. 500 amas is a measure. Amas is a Hebrew, is a measurement. It's about, uh, it's about a foot or something like that. So a foot is 500 by 500. That is the area which is called the Levite. And the number three machna was the camp of the Israelites. And in Jerusalem, from the wall surrounding Jerusalem until the Temple Mount. Okay. So now, during the time that the temple stood, while we had the temple stood, so we had to apply the laws that we learned in the Chumash, like in the desert, we had to apply it over there. So it turns out like this. People who are with leprosy should go outside of Jerusalem. People who are um, have an internal uh, mission, their tome for that, should go out of the Temple Mount. And people who are defiled by touching a body can go on the Temple Mount because that's the Levite. They can't go into the area of where the Beit HaMikdash was, but all Temple Mount is okay for them to go. So that rules would apply equivalent to the way it applied in the desert would apply to them as well. But it's only limited to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim. That's right. Yerushalayim. Anything out of Yerushalayim is, not, is free. It's not, it's it's free. not, so it's not yeah. such a big area. Yeah, okay. But whatever, you know, to go to the temple, you know, you have to be clean because you're going to a holy place. So now, what? Right. That, that, that we spoke about. That's what we don't have. Oh. So that would be when we had the temple. Now the question becomes... A, 
with several things that we have to consider. Because the discussion that we're discussing is, are you allowed to go on the Temple Mount now? Is This is the discussion, are you allowed to go on the Temple Mount presently? So, the number one discussion is, the number one question that we have to ask ourselves is, and I'm going to go through quickly because we're almost running out of time, but this will give you some framework and later on we can expound a little more. The number one question, the most important question that we have to ask ourselves is, now that we don't have a temple, we don't have a temple there, but it's destroyed, is there still sanctity on the Temple Mount? Maybe when the, the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, there is no more sanctity. Now it's a free-for-all. Anybody can go because there's no Bet HaMikdash, there's no courtyard, there's no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no restrictions anymore. And there are two great geniuses which disagree, rabbis, codifiers, which disagree in this case. Maimonides, on one hand, he argues that the sanctity remains today, notwithstanding the fact that the Beit HaMikdash is no longer in existence. And again, I'm not going to go in right now to explain his views, because his view is that once it was sanctified, once it got the special uh, privileges, it became holy, it remains. The fact that we don't have a temple anymore does not negate that. Okay, so that's his opinion. It also is related to the question about all of Israel. Does Israel have its uh, Kedusha, which it does have now as well. But this is specifically talking about the area of the Temple Mount after the fact that we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. Did its holiness still remain? So the Rambam says yes. So according to the Rambam, all the restrictions that applied before would apply today as well. The Radvaz, which is another giant, he says, no, once it's been destroyed, it's destroyed. And therefore, it would seem that he says that you could go up. So, all these things are not so clear. While the Rambam, Maimonides, is clear that he says you can't, that it's, the restrictions still apply, it's not so clear what the Radvaz holds, because some argue, even in his opinion, that he didn't really mean it, he means that it's not as severe, that it may be different. There is various means of interpretation, again, because of the time restrictions. I'm not going to go in, but I'm just to say to you that the codifiers argue, and they're in disagreement, whether today, without the temple, does the sanctity that was there at the time that the temple stood, does it remain or it doesn't remain? And that would make a difference whether the Temple Mount has any importance today of Kedusha that if one is defiled, it shouldn't go up there. So let's assume right now that we're going according to the Rambam. It seems that most of the authority rule, rule, rule like the Rambam, like Maimonides. And they say that you could go, you're not allowed to go up today on the Temple Mount if you are impure. Okay. So now, this is the other question. Although, mentioned earlier, that today we don't have the red heifer. So we are all considered today to be Tamei Mason, because we touched corpse. But that does not exclude us from going onto the Temple Mount, because remember we learned from the Rashi 
that if you are a Tomei Mace, you can go into the Machna Leviyah, you can go in. So even if it does have the Kedusha, even if it has the sanctity, you should still be allowed to go onto the Temple Mount. So we are Tomei Mace, but a Tomei Mace is allowed to go into the Machna Leviyah, so you're allowed to go into the Levite section, which the Temple Mount is the Levite section. When you're saying Temple Mount, you talk about, you talk about the other side of the Kotel? The other side of the Kotel. Now, that, but you're, 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 the problem, one second, I will address that one second, because that's part of the problem that we have. So, it seems like, and what about the fact that we might be Tomei, that we might be impure for internal emissions, bodily emissions that would render us Tomei, then we are not allowed to go on to the Temple Mount because it's the Machana Leviya. To that, the people say they're going to go to the mikvah. That we have a cure. If you go to the mikvah, the mikvah is a cure for, um, will make you tired, will make you pure for that level of impurity of an eternal omission. And now you can go on to the Harabais. So the people that want to go on the Mount Harabais, A, even if they argue halachically, they first they have to make sure that they're not impure. Inter- from internal emissions and they have to believe um, oh, so therefore they will say that they will go on to the double mount now the problem with that is the problem with that is, is A, she brought that up already we don't know exactly where the structure of the Beis Hamikdash is some argue that the mosque is on the Eben Ashisiyah where the Beis Hamikdash, where, where the Kodesh HaKadoshim, where the, uh, the, the Aaron was lying. Some argue that. Radvaz actually argues that. But that's not so simple either. And then, where exactly, how to measure the, 400 by, the 500 by 500? Where exactly how it tilts? Because it's not like a straight measurement there. She says, what about the other side of the, of the walls? It's, it's, not, it's not so clear. The rabbis felt, the rabbis felt that uh, if you start saying people to go, and here we have some practical problems, because A, how are you going to make sure that everybody is clean? Okay, so now it becomes people, people are going to make mistakes. Sometimes even though normally we say go to the mikveh seems to be an easy process, but just going to the mikveh alone doesn't necessarily do it. You have to sometimes count. You have to count seven days, and you have to go through Shiva Nakim. You have till you, till you can go to the mikveh. You can't just go to the mikveh like that and say you're clean. So there's other restrictions. There's so many possibilities of going wrong, and there's a whole slew of other arguments uh, because once you open it up, it's, it's open to making mistakes, even if we should say that there is a way of doing it the right way of going up there. And therefore, the most rabbis, their opinion is not, not to go up onto the harabais, um, that we do go by the Rambam, we rule like the Rambam that today it does have the sanctity, so according to the Radvaz, we wouldn't have, according to, if, if we rule by the other opinion, we don't have a problem, then it doesn't have any sanctity. 
Now, again, if he doesn't have any sanctity, why would you want to go up there? So, I mean, so but in any event, um, it was a mute issue until 1967 more, basically, because the Jews never really had access to the Temple Mount for all these years. While it was under the uh, rules, the Jews were not allowed to go up there and go to the... In 1967, it was the um, Israeli army that liberated and freed uh, the Temple Mount as well as all of Israel. And that was the beginning when all people were allowed to worship, all religions were allowed to do their worship under Israel, which was never, which was unprecedented and never heard about from but before. I think it's not even an issue today because even if Jews want to go there, they can't. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying Correct. to you. Uh, there is some, as you'll see, I want to show you. Uh, there is um, there is a, a couple of videos that I have here. I'm not sure that I can stay here for the videos here. But if you want to watch it, there's two videos. One video shows how... That's a short video. I don't think it's so important to see that because you just know that one video shows how the Jews liberated the... Um, how they landed on the, the first ones to declare that the it's in their hands. But the second video shows you more recently how the Palestinians went crazy and they went attacking the um, the, um, the the people over there. The, it was a Jewish classroom. Kids. Yeah, it was a classroom of Jewish kids. I'm just looking for that uh, for that video uh, of Jewish kids. And how, uh, how does the, the other commentary, Radvah, say that the only thing that made it holy was the holy temple? And being that we don't have a holy temple, it's not holy because that place. The place where the, the holy temple was built was always considered a holy place for the Jews. That's when uh, Abraham was bringing the Akedah of Yitzhak. Different things happened over there at that spot that was always considered a holy place, even without a holy temple. Yeah, but you're, 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 you're right, and because the ruling remains like the Rambam, like Maimonides, but according to the Radvaz's opinion, it's not to say that it's nothing, but it doesn't really have that sanctity. But we don't rule like the in most cases, we don't rule like the... Uh, because that, that's why they built the Holy Temple there, because that was... So the question is, what made it holy? The temple? Or because it was a holy place, that's why they built yeah, the temple. Yeah, but, but, but it, <laughs> like it definitely like needed... what happens okay. first? Here you have a, a group of kids. What was this? This was recently. They, I guess they, they believe that you can go out on top of the mountain. For the kids. The rabbi, there's a rabbi with the kids. You can watch, they can come closer, you can see whatever. 